0: welcome back everyone you're watching we heart therapy i'm your host dr bell aka Annabelle bugatti licensed marriage and family therapist here in fabulous las vegas nevada and i'm also president of the southern nevada community for emotionally focused therapy and i am just extraordinarily blessed and excited to have dr sue johnson back on my show and we are doing a special edition today so, for those of you who do or don't know, you know, Sue Johnson is responsible for pioneering this incredible model of counseling known as emotionally focused therapy, and you know, she has really put in a lot of work and she's faced a lot of adversity to become a pioneer in our field, and you know, her model of counseling has earned the gold standard according to the APA, which is a huge deal. And she's just an incredible woman. So I really, today we're just gonna do sort of like a biographical interview with Sue about her life, about what it's been like for her to become a pioneer, to be a leader in the field, especially as a woman and all of the blocks and adversity that she's faced. Is I'm hoping many of you out there that are leaders you've faced a lot of adversity and challenges and it's very lonely and a lot of people don't talk about the things that you face or have to go through when you're trying to create something big and and be a leader and you know it can feel very isolating and so i hope that you guys will feel inspired by sue and the what she has to share and that it'll encourage you on your own journey in leadership so welcome back sue thank you so much for being with us today and just sharing with us about your life and your journey you're welcome it's nice to be here yeah so first and foremost i want to inquire where did you get your beautiful british accent from
1: (laughs) well that's kind of ironic because um if you listen to me as a little girl you definitely would not have thought that I had a beautiful British accent. I had a very working class Cockney accent. So you'd have heard me say, I don't want to. Okay. I don't like that. No, I'm not doing that. What you think? No, I'm not doing it. And you'd have heard me using strange words like, um, instead of getting upset, we used to say things like, don't you get stroppy with me. Uh Okay. And words like this. So, The point is, by a series of accidents, which I've never, to tell you the truth, been totally clear about, I was an English working class kid who ended up being sent to this upper class Catholic, I was not Catholic, Catholic girls' school run by the nuns, and my mother told me, we are sending you there to lose your accent. Hmm. And that was very perceptive. Because in England, I think this is still true. Mm -hmm. Um, In England, the minute you open your mouth, you are assigned a class. Mm. Okay, I think it's different in America, it -hmm. might be the clothes you wear, or the words you use. But I think in Europe, it's still your accent. So what she was really saying is, we want you to be perceived as middle class, not lower class. And she was right about that in terms of the opportunities the mm. english society offered so gradually 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 i can't tell you when it happened i started to talk like this which is the way the nuns taught right i'm sure they corrected me you know i'm sure they would have said susan you do not choose that word here you know and um, uh-huh. and they were amazing women they were st joseph's teaching nuns on the one hand when you looked at the beliefs they had they were very traditional catholic beliefs pretty misogamist really you know um and on the other hand uh they were amazingly intelligent women who ironically because you know they they made you um learn christian doctrine huge used to have to stand and recite bits of the bible off by heart okay so they made you do that at the same time um they taught you how to think and and philosophy and how to argue in fact i got through graduate school in the in uh, canada on what the nuns taught me because they taught me how to take an argument apart they Mm -hmm. taught me how to think they taught me how to reason um how to write Mm-hmm. Uh, argument. So they were an interesting group, but they taught me how to talk like this. <laughs>
0: yeah. So, so where? So Cockney. Like when you say a Cockney accent, like where would what city or region would that be associated?
1: Well, just south of London. South uh, of London. On the Road to Dover. Oh. Um, English working class town. It used to be a naval town, hmm. and then um the the government took the navy out of the town, and the town just died. Mm. When I was a young child, mm. the town was alive. It was a uh, full of sailors, perusing, mm-hmm. getting drunk, going to music halls, going to brothels, <laughs> fighting, you know, yeah. um, it was full of life. Okay. Yeah. And then when I was about 10 years old, the government came in and closed the Navy down and the whole town just died shrunk yeah but but, you know it was a an alive little town when i was young and my parents had a pub
0: Mm -hmm. so So you were raised by your mom and dad
1: yes and my granny Mm -hmm. it's very important to me Mm -hmm. and who um still has i realized Mm -hmm. um impacted my the way i eat Mm -hmm. I eat very strange things like um like terrible Stinky blue cheese, which oh. the rest of my family thinks is absolutely horrible.
0: It does taste good. I say when I was a kid, I hated it, but now it's good. Well, marmite on toast, which everyone goes, oh, yeah, oh, marmite, or it's like a, in Australia, veggie mite.
1: And Turkish delight, which is pure sugar. <laughs> yeah. My, oh, and ginger, the pure mm-hmm. ginger. My granny used to sit me on her knee and feed. Can you imagine feeding mm-hmm. a child, you know? Marmite sandwiches and ginger
0: and Turkish delight. I mean, good Lord.
1: But anyway, you needed the
0: ginger to keep your stomach from feeling upset between the sugar and the Marmite. <laughs> right. But
1: I had a pretty strange childhood. I mean, I had a talk about childhood that teaches you there's not um, there's more than one reality. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and I, I once heard someone say that children accept the reality that's presented to them. So it's really interesting that you talking about having more than one reality. And so you grew up in this home, so you had mom and dad and granny lived with you. And did you have siblings or was it just you?
1: No, no siblings, but you have to think that in the pub, it's an English working class pub, so it's really a community. Mm -hmm. I had, there were no children in the streets around me. The Mm -hmm. only children I interacted with were at school and they were all upper-class Catholic, snubbed they spoke like this okay (laughs) they they were picked up in the daimler at the end of the school i had to go on three buses home right so and we didn't we didn't even have a phone okay so that was sort of the only you know young people i was around for, for years and years and years until i joined a cathedral choir when i was an adolescent which was very beautiful for me but i had Um, about 50 uncles and aunties because everyone who came into the pub, Mm -hmm. everyone, Mm -hmm. the the admiral, Mm -hmm. the captain, and the tramp, who my mother used to feed breakfast to, and the man who stood on the corner and sold papers, Mm -hmm. everyone was Mm -hmm. uncle or auntie. Mm -hmm. And my father told me a little bit later in life that my favorite auntie, The one i really loved Mm -hmm. auntie nancy who wore who wore always wear bright red high-heeled shoes Mm -hmm. and bright red lipstick was Mm -hmm. basically the the um the pub lady of the night Mm -hmm. she was the escort service for our little pub and Mm -hmm. who cares i don't care i loved her she used to you know play with me and talk to me and it was quite a strange way to bring up a child because i was surrounded by um adults Mm -hmm. safe adults Mm -hmm. because i was you know my father was there all the time and he would have killed anybody who'd ever Mm -hmm. you know but um and they would all interact with me and talk to me so Mm -hmm. i think this had a huge impact on the way i developed as a child because i was always interacting with adults you know and i was encouraged by my father um, what to be real, mm. you know, like he loved it. If I said to somebody, I think that's a silly thing to say, I don't think that's true at all, he'd love it. He'd mm-hmm. laugh and joke and say, She's just told you you're silly, Sid. You're silly because my daughter knows that you're silly. I mean, he'd celebrate this, you know. So, mm. was, I, in other words, I was given lots of freedom and leeway and safety in this huge varied adult world where i watch people fight uh comfort each other make up
0: have a complex realized, situations for a child to sort of observe and take in
1: oh you know when <laughs> i look on it now people were having ptsd flashbacks wow my father, my father was going in and yeah holding them and you know comforting them and i didn't know what they were i just knew that sometimes uncle bill Sometimes Uncle Bill turned strange and started yelling, mm-hmm. and then everyone got around Uncle Bill, mm-hmm. lowered Uncle Bill to the floor, and started talking in quiet voices. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't know what I was looking at, but yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, I got, I got so, the message that emotion was was manageable anyway.
0: Mm. So, how did how were emotions done? In your family, growing up, since this is a question we always ask, right?
1: Well, on the one hand, my my family was quite traditional. My father was a sailor. I mean, he, if you have watched my father and mother, my father was the withdrawer, and mm-hmm. my mother was hell on wheels. She'd have given any EFT therapist, uh, you, you know, lots of luck managing mm-hmm. her. She was wild. um You know, I I don't know if you'd have called her a d- demander. She was a she was the most aggressive human being I've ever met oh. and she was small mm. and she was a fighter. And she told me the only virtue that matters in life
0: is courage. Mm. That's it. If you don't have that, you don't have anything. Mm. And um, Should I imagine being a woman in a naval town, you know, and working in a bar, you know, and being short, being a, a small human, you know, like everything seemed big and you had to become big in order to keep up and survive you know
1: well she was the scary one if things got out of hand you Mm. and i'd be standing there on a little stool cleaning glasses because the idea that if a working class kid you were supposed to help okay there was nothing about playing and watching television so i was cleaning glasses if things got out of hand particularly on a friday night when people would get paid and they'd get drunk my mother who always wore a black black suit mm-hmm. right would um reach behind her and grab a bottle could be a bottle of sherry imagine how heavy a, a full bottle of sherry is yeah. just reach behind her walk out into the fray, whatever was going on and say hey right, boys behave mm-hmm. right, And if they didn't mm-hmm. she'd crown somebody
0: yeah Okay, it was no messing about. So, yeah, would, I think people could kept that business her. going, you know, because if they had gotten into fights and torn up the bar, that would have been their livelihood.
1: Well, I remember when I was an adolescent, being in London, and these two very, very, very upper-class women laughing at us in a in a elevator in a a, a store that really we we didn't really belong in. You know, I don't know what we were doing there. It was much too expensive for us. They were laughing at us and they were saying things like, Oh my god, they've let the riff raff in here.
0: Mm.
1: You know, and um they were messing I- about with the elevator so that our our buttons would never come up.
0: Oh, how <laughs> cruel. How did well, you feel about that?
1: I don't know. I think I was about twelve. And I stood there. My mother stepped mm-hmm. towards them and said, I wouldn't do that if I were you, because I'll put your teeth down your throat and they and she meant it and they listened and they stopped and i remember thinking wow yeah wow see that impressed me the mm-hmm. trouble is of course your her aggression sometimes came towards me which right was, which wasn't so good
0: well like all good pursuers her you know, that ability to fight had its place and could do a lot of good and a lot of protection, but without a lot of control over it, she didn't realize how it bled over into places where it might not be so good.
1: No, and by the time I was an adolescent, her and I were in a war, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Straight war.
0: Yeah. Mm Though, Sue, I will have to say, you are a bit of a fighter because you would have never been able to get where you are without having that fighting spirit in you, even if you don't display it as like aggressive anger towards others you know you don't you don't walk around I'm assuming or never did like you know threatening to put people's teeth down their throat but (laughs) you're still a fighter in your own way you know
1: absolutely um if you weren't a fighter when I was growing up in English working class England um well I don't know what you would have been you know, yeah. all my family except my father said that maybe, maybe, maybe I could be a hairdresser or a nurse. But um, the idea of me going to university was ridiculous mm. because all I needed to do was find a man with a suit mm. and marry him. Mm. And my father said. She's passed the exams. She's going to university. Mm. And that's that. But the bottom line is. Um, I remember going on the bus to meet this man, this government official, and realising that even if I had passed these A-levels, these exams, um, if this man did not agree that I should get a government grant for the three years of my university, that I wouldn't be able to go because my family didn't have the money. So I remember sitting there on that bus and thinking, this man has... this power over me you know it's like if he says no for any reason what am i going to do right and i felt very trapped because he didn't know so i went off to university Mm. which you know i was a freak at university i was the um working class mouse with a skirt about
0: two inches from my ankles and no makeup and um didn't quite fit in you didn't feel like you fit in no. but do what you're saying to me though so we rewind it sounds like that wasn't necessarily a foreign experience for you you're saying you know like with that experience with those ladies in the elevator sort of saying you don't belong here but then also your awareness as a young child that other kids are riding different buses going to different schools speaking differently like you it sounds like as early as you developed awareness sort of had this idea of self and other and not sort of fitting in where others are would that feel fair
1: yes i was an outsider to be honest um i mean in some ways i've always been an outsider in my life and i still am um any big institution i've ever worked for <laughs> um i've ended up telling them to go to hell at some point okay um which takes a lot of courage well i don't know if it does but it's quite interesting when i tell you that because it's true i mean it's like what is that i i somehow learned maybe from my mother um that the way to get by is to be as gracious and pleasant as you can be but if somebody comes for you Mm -hmm then um that's
0: that Mm. all all don't don't let them mess with you
1: (sighs) don't let them mess with you because you know what and i still believe this Mm -hmm. if you let them mess with you the messing continues yeah we all seem to think that if we let people mess with us they'll calm down they'll be nice no they won't Mm -hmm. if you let people mess with you Mm -hmm. so you know when i look back on it been times in my life when I just don't know how I ever how I ever where that assertiveness came from I don't know whether it came from my mother or my father or but there's something English working class about it which is don't don't you don't you you know Mm -hmm. pull my buttons as they would say or you know don't you Mm -hmm. because I'll fight you I'll you know I'll
0: well, it sounds very much like, you know, again, sort of par for the course of growing up in a pub, you know, where you had to fight and survive in a naval town, I mean, and your mom and your dad, I mean, it was just this constant reinforced message all around you. So, of course, it's going to wear off on you and, you know, and of course, through the through your lifetime of becoming a therapist and, you know, a a pioneer, you, you've learned how to nuance that, you know, obviously, there's ways to, you know, get, you know, respectful ways to get people to not mess with you. And then there's ways that can be, you know, very rough.
1: (laughs) (laughs) My first job after graduating, I was teaching in this little college in Oxfordshire. And one of the Classes I was teaching, which was a bit bizarre because they're only 21 years old, Mm -hmm. was this group of business men who were like 40 or something. And, you know, they all thought it was ridiculous that I was their teacher. Mm -hmm. And they said they wouldn't do what I was asking. So I said, okay, then um, every class we're going to, I'm going to teach you existential philosophy, and you'll have all this homework. And at every class you will do a test of existential philosophy. And if you don't get 70 on all of them, I'll fail the hell out of you. A long silence, and then they decided I was okay. Uh What was interesting was, my boss said to me, "Can you imagine this? This is my first job." He says, "Um, Sue, there's been a complaint." I said, "A complaint?" He said, "Yes, there's been a complaint by the head of business studies that there's like twelve men in this class of about forty. Okay, there's been a complaint." from the head of business studies that after you've you've taught them, they are unruly. Unruly? Yes, they are unruly. They are. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, they are making jokes and they are sort of lively and they are difficult for the next teacher to handle. And I sat there and I said, right, right. So I said, And where did I get the moxie? I don't know. I said, Harry, you wouldn't be trying to tell me that the people in this college are implying that I'm sexually turning these guys on, would you? You wouldn't be trying to tell me that. Let me guess that you told me the head of business studies that I was such a good teacher. Isn't that what you did, Harry? And he looks at me, And that was that, you know, it's like, so so I thought, oh, no, we're not doing that. Mm. But I had a lot of that in that college. People would spy on my classes, Mm. find two of the faculty lying on the floor, watching me teach a drama class through the cracks in the in the partition. And I I walk up and say, hi, guys, what are you doing? trying to find out if the drama teacher is doing something naughty. Oh, my mm. God. You know, so I had a lot of that. I must say, when I came to North America, it improved.
0: Okay, so I just, I want to sort of go backwards, because there's a lot of questions I want to ask before we get too far ahead. So sorry, guys, if you're watching, because this is all fabulous. And I, I just, I want to sort of, I love painting your, your attachment history here, Sue. This is amazing sort of how sue became who she is and so you know one big question that sort of comes up on my mind is when you're this kid in this pub did you ever have another a friend that was a child ever did you ever befriend another child never there
1: were no children every single person around me was an adult my grandmother was a friend or mm-hmm. an i would make pastry together. I'm still a mean pastry cook. Okay. Mm -hmm. My grandmother, I've never made hard pastry in my life. I don't know how people do it. Um, My grandmother and I would play and sing and I had aunties all over. Mm -hmm. The the cleaning lady was called Auntie Nelly. Mm -hmm. She had one tooth in the middle of her Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, um, and a huge belly covered with a very dirty apron her and i used to play hide and seek um but no play
0: but it wasn't necessarily with kids it was with other adults
1: and i think that changes a lot Mm. you know of course you have to understand that when i went to school i was really an outsider. i spoke differently Mm -hmm. my clothes were different because my family couldn't Mm -hmm. uh, pay for a a new a new uniform every year yeah. So the uniform was uh, too big. Then it was fit, and then it was too small. This is and... when
0: you went to the Catholic school. Yeah. How you know, old were like... you? So your husband sent us a picture, which you know I'm going to pop on in this cute little jumper. Now, how old were you in the picture?
1: I think I was about three, and I was at the the, the I was at the market in my very 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 best coat, oh. which had a velvet collar, and it was the only one I had. But when I was four, if you can believe, I can't believe my parents did this. It will, I was a year too young. When I was four, I was given to an adolescent girl that I'd never met and put on a bus and sent two towns away to this Catholic school where all the women were just in black. Mm. Everybody talked about hell, atonement, sin. All the pictures on the walls were of martyrs and, you know, um, I was to say I did not belong. And I think if you'd seen pictures of me as a young adolescent, mm-hmm. all the other girls, the nice Catholic girls, all smiling, mm-hmm. you know, and, and me, I'm in the back going. Mm-hmm. But I've got my arms across my chest and I'm like, and by that time know. I was what they call in England, stroppy. Mm-hmm. I was stroppy. I was... Struppy? Uh, sorry? Struppy? Stroppy. Like, don't mess with me. Like, the, the, uh, I found out later that the nun who used to teach us philosophy was terrified of me, which was funny because I was terrified of her. Yeah. But, but I said, I wrote to her when she was an old lady and I said, I was terrified of you. And she said, oh my God, that was funny because you're the most terrifying student I ever had. So ah. apparently that was because... You know when i was about 13 she would make pronouncements right like the pope is infallible right mm-hmm. i Duh. i would say no i don't think so <laughs> get a rebellious side yes, and being a wonderful teacher she'd let me say why and um i'd say no that was only decided just a few years ago and I think he's made all kinds of mistakes. And no, I don't think, and I, he's human being. I don't believe human beings infallible. And, and, but you, they, those women taught philosophy and I could make arguments and that nun, she tolerate me. I mean, she tolerate, when I think on it, she tolerate me. Yeah, I was the rebel. I was the one that said, and you know, that went into graduate school. I can remember hearing some famous, famous person, who was he? Came from England talking about emotion. I was the strange counseling student who joined all the clinical students in their classes just because I wanted to. And I remember sitting at the back listening to this man, and he was pontificating about emotion. This was maybe the first year of graduate school. And he's announcing all these things, you know, announcing. So I remember sitting there. And I put up my hand and said, um, "None of this makes any sense to me. I don't agree with you at all. I don't think it. I don't think emotion is like this at all. Here's my perception of emotion. Where the hell did I get the guts to do that? I have no idea. But I, I, I did. I was the, I was the from
0: the sailors.
1: Oh, it must. All right, sailors <laughs> taught me. Okay, from my dad. Yes. my dad was my main attachment figure, mm-hmm. and he was an uneducated country boy ran away to the navy and he was the most spectacular attachment dad you Mm. could ever imagine i do not know how he knew how to do that Mm. i just know that he was out to love yeah he was
0: well sue don't you say that it kind of is hardwired into us it's sort of some of our upbringings that may rewire it but
1: the way he did it though yeah you know, he grew up in a in a brutal working mm-hmm. class family where his father used to hit him regularly, like nine kids in living in two rooms. Yeah. Um, how did he know?
0: Yeah.
1: How on earth did he know how to nurture me? You
0: know, yeah.
1: and, um things would happen. I don't know, like I remember when I was about 18 being at this some sort of do where we were meeting the conservative MP for the area was very you know traditional old guy and we were in this receiving line and he asked me something and i answered and he put me down i can't remember what he said but he said something patronizing and put me down (laughs) and what i always remember is my father reached across and said to him i wouldn't do that if i were you he stood up for you he protected you i I wouldn't do that if i were you and that was an entry for me to go for this dude right but he he adored my intelligence my my rebellion Mm. he he adored it and i think that had a huge impact
0: he didn't just accept it he nurtured it right yeah 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 it's like he saw this part of you and really cultivated it, and saw it as an asset, and and something that could really take you a lot of places that maybe he never been, and it and it did yes, take. You.
1: I think that's true. He was proud of it.
0: Yeah, yeah. So okay, so you went to Catholic school when you were four. That's when you got yeah. shipped away.
1: No, I wasn't shipped away. I still oh. I still slept at home. Slept I at home. There all day, mm-hmm. and I stayed at that school till I was seventeen.
0: Seventeen. So all all of your school age years, growing up with the nuns at school, and it sounds like constantly being so. It's like these two like opposite forces. Like you have society constantly telling you, "Sue, you don't fit in. You're not good enough." But then at home, you know, feeling so loved and welcomed and celebrated. So how did you end up feeling amidst the two of those? How did you feel about yourself growing up?
1: that's a good question um I think I mostly felt like an outsider and that I had to somehow that made me vigilant and ready to fight mm. so um yeah there was a woman there was a girl with a very 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 upper class accent who used to put me down all the time and I remember the other girls in the class coming to me and saying that I was being mean to her i was being mean to angela because i would reply to her right in a very cutting way and would i stop and i remember saying no i won't stop i like it and that was me being like Um, no i'm going to fight here i'm going to fight so for me to go to university was revolutionary Mm. um it was a way out basically Mm. i think my father understood He wanted a way out. He went went into the Navy. Mm -hmm. And I think he understood that I wanted a way out. And the only way I could see Mm -hmm. was to go to university. Mm -hmm. Career counseling consisted of this enormously tall nun (laughs) saying to me, Susan, you may go to university and you may study history or English literature. Choose. So what the heck? No, no, I didn't even know anything about psychology. So I said, um, "I choose English literature." Sister, she said, "Good," and that was that. You know, that was like finish. you know, like that was so. I went to university and studied English literature. And was it to groom you to be a teacher? Was that sort of what women uh, were? I don't think anyone knew what it was, but that was all it it made you
0: r- write for, right? But yeah, uh, well, it didn't really paint this way for women to have a lot of career choice. And and what what time in history would you have been going to university? Was this like the 50s? Was this the 60s, 70s?
1: I'm trying to remember now exactly. I think I finished my, I was too young, right? Mm But I finished my degree, I think in 68. Mm -hmm. I went and took a, I didn't know what to do. So I went to London and took this adult education course mm-hmm. and I again I was a rebel because they said I was too young mm-hmm. to take the adult education course because I was only 21 but they
0: they did the interview
1: with me and they let me in so mm-hmm. I was an experiment
0: and uh well what's interesting so you sort of grew up during like the 50s and the 60s it sounds like coming of age and sort of in in societal history and and I'm not sure how much England differed from America in that way because obviously I didn't grow up in England, but it seemed oh. like sort of the careers women were shaped for, you know, aside from being a, a stay at home mom or a stay at home wife, it was a teacher, a secretary, you know, or maybe like a stenographer or whatever. But they're really women weren't encouraged to, to become, you know, PhDs and get graduate degrees. Oh,
1: are you kidding? <laughs> no, no. And you know, I thought of coming to North America as pure escape, mm. okay? When people say, well, what did you want when you came to North America? I came as a graduate student because that's the way I could get into Canada, okay? Yeah. But to do an MA in English Literature, by which time I was bored with English Literature, but I I came, mm. it was pure escape. It was, I. my granny reminded me that apparently when I was about 11 in the kitchen, <laughs> we lived in this damp little house with just one coal uh, one little coal of fire for heat right mm-hmm. i remember in the kitchen apparently i said to her when i was about 11 i'm getting out of here mm-hmm. <laughs> and she said what do you mean the kitchen or you know the town she i said and apparently i said she had an amazing memory so i believe her um she said no you, you said to me i'm getting out of england so I think I always felt like I wanted out I wanted out I wanted to I wanted a bigger world.
0: Mhm.
1: And yeah. um for me Canada was that bigger world. Mm-hmm. And indeed it was. I mean I came here as a graduate student and everything was different there wasn't so much misogamy there was a lot more wealth mm-hmm. a lot more openness um yeah, a
0: lot more opportunity for people yeah. to become more
1: opportunity to like
0: rise up and, and I
1: started acting which was what is it, acting yeah I, I was an actress for a couple of years and...
0: that's hilarious I I grew up in Southern California and I also grew up my family wasn't very well off also picked on a lot and always felt like an an outsider and I also you know Hollywood was not too far away and you know tried my hand at that for a while and yeah, you know, here I am, a therapist. <laughs> so you know, what
1: I remember is saying to my friend, um, "I'm going to quit the acting thing." Mm-hmm. And first of all, you 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 can't live on it, okay? I was doing graduate, I was in graduate school and acting, and you know, I had no money. Um, and uh, I said, "I'm going to quit," and she said, "Why are you quitting?" I said, "Because um, I get all I get is tart parts." Mm-hmm. You tarts are like you know sexual I said, like, yeah. I'm tired of playing tarts I had bright red hair at the time uh-huh. and an amazing figure okay you were so, an ginger
0: um, growing up
1: Sue oh my gosh really basically yeah and then I dyed my hair redder and redder and redder yeah. right mm-hmm. so um I see why I got tart parts you know I mean it was uh-huh. quite reasonable really but for me it was I'm not doing this mm-hmm. so I ended up having a fight with the hey every organization i've ever been in i fight with the i end up fighting with the the boss. i think
0: so part of it is you're so smart and you learned to i mean also growing up around adults you've learned to see it's like you had an old soul that matured very fast and the nuns taught you how to think for yourself and so you've always used your mind to sort of challenge the status quo which i think is part of what makes a good leader you know, as people who are willing to challenge the status quo, but people who are also willing to put in the tough fights because they are difficult and extremely painful to ruffle feathers, and you know sometimes you have to. And you know, it's interesting. Also, this that you talk about feeling like an outsider has so many leaders that I talk to have that same feeling of feeling like an outsider.
1: You don't belong, mm-hmm. and I think what I did with that is. Okay, then. Mm-hmm. All right, then. Mm-hmm. I don't belong. All right, then. So I don't belong. So, yeah. you know,
0: it feels like am. it gives you
1: nothing to lose. Oh. So, you know, <laughs> it's
0: like,
1: I don't belong. So I'm not going to try and belong to you. You could go to hell. So, yeah. So that ended up with me telling the head of the English department that I didn't want his MA. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then I went and looked for a job and I found a job in this counseling center for disturbed adolescents and that
0: changed everything
1: changed everything because i started to take courses in uh psychology and counseling and
0: i loved the kids how old would you have been at this point
1: oh, i can't i don't know somewhere in my 20s um uh but I loved the kids and I loved them. We didn't know what we were doing. Let's be clear. Okay.
0: But what I find interesting too, Sue, is that you grew up not playing with children. So I find it fascinating that, you know, you fell so in love with working with the kids. It's like sort of getting to be around the kids that you never got to be around growing up, but in a safe kind of way. Other, you know, if they're troubled adolescents, in some ways you could relate you know because these are kids being picked on that don't fit in you know so a part of you had this big heart for them but also maybe fascinated because they were people you never got to interact with growing up you know
1: characters you know the first therapy case i was assigned to if you can believe i'm doing i love efit these days i'm doing all kinds of efit individual um eft mm-hmm. but you know when i think back and i talked about this at the networker i think on one of their evening things the first kid i was assigned to lee wouldn't talk okay so i'm told go and do therapy with this kid so i sit there i try to talk to the kid the kid looks at me looks away and he 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 was scared of the saliva in his mouth mm. so he gradually well <laughs> and then i'd have to say things like lee go to the washroom and spit and he'd do it and then he'd come back and he wouldn't talk so for the first i don't know 10 sessions of psychotherapy i ever did in my life this kid would talk so then i i what did i do i'd i'd talk i'd talk about oh i'm so glad we're having this session and i understand that it's hard for you to talk and look oh look at that bird there look at oh i work like crazy and then finally finally this kid started to talk to me, and he was the weirdest kid. Do you know what he looked like? He looked like Kramer on Seinfeld. That? Yes, he looked like he looked yeah. like a twelve-year-old Kramer, okay, with the hair, mm-hmm. you know, and the and the buttoned-up.
0: Um, Maybe back then it probably was Kramer as a young kid. <laughs> but he 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 and I became buds,
1: and you know he started um standing up to these bullies and mm. in the cottage and he would stand up to them and he'd look at me and he'd go
0: hey. right and I'd go hey. back right and um I love the kids and I love that Sue you helped a kid stand up for themselves yes like you learned how to stand up for yourself yes
1: and then I started taking all these courses and I got I fell in love mm-hmm. with psychology and went and you know, found a way to do a PhD. Um, mm-hmm. And then I fell in love. I was a.
0: What was English- it like for a woman to get into a PhD program back then?
1: It was difficult um, for me. Why? Oh, they put up all kinds of barriers. Mm-hmm. Um, the head of department decided I was difficult and didn't want me in the program um you know I, I wasn't that difficult you know anyway so um but I got in and I was insane when I look back on it now I was insane okay I was um on fire obsessed uh I can't tell you when I look I took well I took twice as many courses as I needed for my PhD. Mm-hmm. I went and took all the clinical courses as well as the counselling courses. You were hungry for learning. I was hungry and I my thesis was, when I look back on it now, mm-hmm. I mean, it was the first study of EFT. Mm-hmm. It's outrageous. Okay, mm-hmm. as, as the head of department said to me, you hated me. She mm-hmm. said, I don't know who you think you are, but mm-hmm. this this thesis project mm. is bigger than any of our faculty have ever attempted.
0: Oh, look at you, Sue, rule breaker again, acting out of your status, right?
1: <laughs> and I said to her, well, that says it's more about your faculty than about me, doesn't it? So I'm gonna do it. Oh, amen.
0: So,
1: but when I look back on it now, it nearly killed me.
0: Oh, yeah, um, so I wanna, I wanna hear more about that. And we have this, another picture of you, and this is supposed to be you in grad school, you're reading a book is this during your phd program yes and um you know i i was just
1: on fire learning to work with couples and
0: i had no idea what made you want so you worked with the kids what made you sort of pivot into couples from working with adolescents
1: i didn't i was just i ended up for my last placement being sent to this agency Mm -hmm. and they said oh good You're a little bit older and you've worked with groups and individuals and families. So, um, all our couples therapists are sick right now. So we know you're only really supposed to have to do two cases a week, but would you mind if you came in three days a week and did a couple on the hour, every hour? And see, I tell you how nuts I was. I said, sure. I said, sure. How hard can it be? And then I saw my first couple. Oh my God. Like I, I, I you know, thought, oh, nothing works, like nothing nothing works with these guys, They're gonna, they they want to kill each other. And and I went to the library and everything was, nothing. first of all, there was analytic stuff about how they were all in collusion, that didn't help. Then there was Neil Jacobson, who was just down the coast in Seattle, saying all you had to do was teach them skills, that didn't work.
0: So I so thought... It- Basically, Sue, you are coming up in a time where the field was actually male dominated as opposed to female dominated like it is now.
1: Sweetheart, the field, let's not have any illusions, the field of psychology, even though there's a lot of brilliant women, it is still male dominated. OK, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, like, believe me, mm-hmm. I've stood on the stage enough times with six men and they're all in their sweaters and jeans and I'm in a business suit and I know why I'm in a business suit. So uh, that's still around, okay? What was
0: that like for you to be outnumbered to have every barrier, ridiculous barriers put in your place just because you're a woman? It
1: was annoying. <laughs> <laughs> like the when 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 I did the results for the first study, I wrote it up for the first prestige for the most prestigious journal I could, Journal of Consulting and Clinical Psych. Mm. And they took it. And everyone was like oh my god uh-huh. and i got a professorship on on the basis of that but you know, i was shocked okay
0: mm-hmm. so then and you published solo or with somebody else
1: there's greenberg in the beginning because he was my advisor although he was never really into couples individual therapy was always his thing but and then i started publishing on my own especially about attachment because i realized it was all about attachment mm-hmm. and well I mean, you know, my articles would get not just rejected, they'd get, um, well, I remember a six-page single-spaced diatribe review that basically said I was incompetent, dangerous, uh, pathetic, uh, misguided, um, you know,
0: I'd get this stuff. And... You were uh, challenging the norm, also. Was a lot I of anti-attachment, ever, you know?
1: Was I ever. And people would tell me, no, you're crazy. You know, this is all about differentiation, individuation. Um, you know, this is what we're doing here, making people separate. And I'd say, uh, no, actually, we're not. we people can only be separate if they're connected first. And people get enraged at me. And um, so yeah, for a number of years it was quite frustrating. And I remember saying to my Wonderful husband. I don't think I can keep doing this. It's too depressing. I think I'll go and do depression research. <laughs> yeah. And then I would go and work with my couples mm-hmm. and get turned on. And mm-hmm. I what we what I did that saved my life was I went and taped my couples, of course, and watched them mm-hmm. and watched them again and again and again and saw mm-hmm. the reality, saw the patterns, the things that the conversations that changed people. And of course, it turned me on and it turned me on and then around really only after about 2000, adult attachment started coming sort of in. Mm -hmm. Um, There's lots of people who write about it, but my favorites are Phil Shaver, who's at Davis and uh, Mario Michelanza, who's in Israel, Mm -hmm. because for me, they have the cleanest view of adult attachment and they started writing and suddenly I would be, it was quite weird, instead of being sort of castigated and having to fight to have my articles accepted, I would find myself the only clinician in a group of expert attachment people. I think, oh my goodness me, you know, like what am I doing here? And then they turn and say things like, Sue, would you kindly tell us how to turn this concept into therapy? And I'd go, uh, you know uh, uh, you know, but I try and um, attachments started to grow and EFT started to grow and our research started to grow and I thought well maybe maybe we can really contribute to the field of couples therapy well mm-hmm. I don't know if it's arrogant or not but I think we've changed the field of couples therapy mm-hmm. and we've changed I hope I hope we're starting to change people's idea about romantic love which mm-hmm. is not a mystery mm-hmm. and it's not dangerous right and um, we can what you understand and what you understand the structure of you can shape mm-hmm. so i think we have contributed to the field of couple therapy and now i think we're we're busy contributing to the field of individual therapy with efit so it's been an amazing journey and
0: i've been joined by a lot of wonderful colleagues on the way but in yeah. the beginning oh my gosh oh. along the way i mean so you know okay so let's sort of put this in perspective so you know when you were coming of age coming into grand grad school so you know society'd come off like the dr spock era you know of like tough it out um the self-soothing everything and Fulby was sort of one of the first people to even open the door of attachment and say hey maybe like our connection to other humans the quality matters to our health and our well-being you know and, and I think about like coming off the industrial revolution around the globe you know people often stayed in marriages for the same reason they stayed in bad jobs you know was you know economic survival and happiness and love these were like concepts for a better off more enlightened culture you know where their everyday survival you know wasn't threatened so people walked around living in survival mode in in early culture and not even being able to think about happiness or love as an essential ingredient for life they just well i made this decision i got to survive we just make decisions from that place and then as we became better off as a culture as a society we start to thrive more then they start realizing hey maybe like if we're going to stay in these it might be important for our health our well-being because people were becoming alcoholics and suicide rates were up you know depression ptsd they're like "Hmm, maybe like there's something more to this, you know, an enter yes. attachment. Well, I think
1: it's important to note that marriage, the nature of marriage has changed from an economic to an emotional mm-hmm. uh, enterprise. Mm-hmm. And that is because the status of women in society has changed. Mm-hmm. And women's needs and longings have started to be listened to rather than seen as somehow a sign of weakness or frailty or their inferiority and women have started to have the ability to walk away from a relationship or to say what i need in this relationship is mm. and i think uh, it's tied the way marriage has changed is tied very much yeah. to the rise of women i'm a yeah. i'm a real feminist i don't i think you know yeah. that and um
0: yeah people don't have to be stuck because of finances or economics. They have more choice, which means, you know, if we're going to make this work, we have to consider needs, consider each other's feelings versus like, oh, well, I'm just going to treat you however I'm going to, and you're just going to have to take it because you can't afford to go anywhere else.
1: That's right. But I think it's also more than you can't afford. It's that more and more we've started to recognize uh, women have started to stand up and say, hey, Mm -hmm. I matter Mm -hmm. and I count." And I just read this incredible book, what's it called? Something like Hidden Warriors about women as uh, in combat in war. And it's an incredible book. It's quite new. And what it basically points out is that it's not that women have wanted the right to go and kill people. That's not the point. The women have wanted to be seen as strong, competent, mm. and able to be leaders. Mm. able to be tough if they needed to be in other words able to be the equal of a man whether they had big shoulders Mm -hmm. to carry stuff into war or not women wanted to be seen as competent and I think that has that is happening has happened
0: and and that's what you went to war for you went to war on behalf of women I mean again a male dominated field and you know again at a time you know so we had the sexual revolution in the end of the 60s and the 80s you have more of the women's liberation you know so some of those societal movements were, were helping this along but at the time that you were achieving a higher education it was still you know very more rare than common for women yes it really
1: was i mean it, you know i think maybe because i was working class but i just assumed you know, that um, I was going to have to fight, you know, for everything. I mean, maybe some, did. Of those, yeah, some of those other girls maybe didn't, but I assumed because that was the world I grew up in. And
0: Or maybe they didn't have the courage to fight for it or know that, you know, if you do fight successfully, there's something on the other side. They might not have had as much success in fighting for something as you have. And so you knew, like, some fights are worth fighting. And that is a hallmark of a good leader right is that on behalf of you know the people they serve they know that some feathers have to be ruffled some some changes have to be made you know and you have to be willing to endure that discomfort in order to make those changes
1: that's right you have to be you have to, uh, personally i found it very challenging to lead ISEFT, the International Center for Excellence in EFT all these years, I never chose, if you'd said to me, do you want to lead an organization? I'd say, hell no, you know, I just want to do my own thing, you know, but um, I found it very challenging. And um, it's pushed me to grow. And I'm sure I've made some mistakes. But the bottom line is, if you're a leader, your responsibility is to have an overview and have a vision and a mission and your responsibility Mm -hmm. is to stand by that mission and whether people like you or approve of you Mm -hmm. in the end is irrelevant you you how do
0: you endure that sue without being killed by it because you know like on one hand we do understand this and and many of us who are leaders have had to endure it but at the same time it is painful when it feels like you have haters, and you're trying to do something good, how did you endure it? How did you get through it?
1: That's a good question. Um, Because a few years ago, when all kinds of stuff came up about diversity, which I think was good, you know, it made us much more aware. um, uh, Due to a conversation that I had online, um, you know, a whole bunch of people decided that I was obviously a white supremacist, which is a bit crazy, because I have two um internationally adopted multiracial children but there you go but you know my family looks like the UN okay if you saw my family we're weird okay we come from every continent every sexual Mm -hmm. orientation every we're just a weird lot very diverse yeah very diverse but everyone decided this and you know the cancel culture Mm
0: -hmm. thing
1: kicked in and um I was totally shocked first of all because these are my colleagues who I felt that I'd given to for years. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, you know, I was, uh, oh, I was the oppressor, the bad guy, the suddenly, you know, and, and I was, it was clear to me that none of my usual ways of dealing with it were going to work. I couldn't um, reply because everything I said proved that I was mm-hmm. a white supremacist. Anyway. I sort <laughs> and, of backed into a corner. Yeah, I couldn't, there was nothing I could do so um i did something that was very un sue johnson which is i withdrew mm. and um uh hey i'm an attachment theorist Talked to my wonderful 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 husband who is the blessing of my life who stood with me and um there was a period of time which was very bad and i felt very alone indeed mm. but um I guess I did what my father told me to do, which is when the world comes for you and you're scared, you take a deep breath, you place your feet out so that you can feel the ground under your feet. You look at the horizon, you know you can deal with whatever comes and you listen to my voice. Mm. And um, He taught me to do that and I did that. And we gradually came back into balance and, worked together as a group running ISEFT and I found my way back. But I think it changed me. Mm -hmm. Um, It made me more cynical Mm -hmm. about our society and about our people. It it scared me, and it still does, Mm -hmm. about how we are becoming polarized and Mm -hmm. we take group membership as identity mm-hmm. membership is not identity right i am sue apart from whatever group you put me in i am sue i'm white i'm sue mm-hmm. i'm uh you know i'm a, i'm a
0: professional but i'm sue and mm-hmm. so and you're also not exempt from the human condition either
1: exactly so i deserve as much empathy as mm-hmm. anyone else whether i'm the oppressor because I'm in I've got some power your know, power is an interesting one people talk about power somebody told me the other day that I'm powerful because I'm the director of iceft I, I i remember to talk to the person I felt like saying look actually I keep trying to give this power away you know what it is it's work is what it is
0: it's responsibility I've tried it's to give it away several times and nobody yeah.
1: wants it okay yeah so what are you one of my about?
0: One of my favorite quotes on leadership actually came from a series of movies called The Divergent Series. And uh, one of the characters said, real leaders don't crave power, they're called by necessity. And I know for you, Sue, you pioneered, if you hadn't done it, who was going to do it? You know, you saw saw a a path, an opening, uncharted territory that was beckoning, and you had the courage, fortitude to follow through with it. And you faced so much oppression that people today have no idea of right what what that was like for you at a time where such a male-dominated field and so many barriers you know and and you know when you make a way and yeah you have a platform you have a voice but you have responsibility it's not about power you have no desire to have power over
1: that's right and The fact of the matter is that the whole council culture is a massively hurtful Mm
0: -hmm.
1: it's it's actually designed to undermine your sense of identity Mm -hmm. and um it's ironically it's actually oppressive as hell it's supposed to not it's supposed to answer oppression but it's oppressive as hell Mm -hmm. and it took me a while to recover but yeah i have recovered and what's
0: ironic, sue about what you're saying too is that it's like trying to correct a system by using the same thing that broke it
1: yes that's right that's actually very i like that that's very perceptive and um i think it's changed me in that to be honest it's made me even what i don't think strong is the word i don't know what it is all i know now is that in the past i'm english so i can be very assertive but i'm taught to be polite Mm -hmm. especially polite okay that was that's the way it is you know Mm -hmm. well um that's gone recently and i recognize that i actually put things i actually type i was typing it the other day i thought goodness me this is uh is this me Mm -hmm. typing this because somebody sent me something and i wrote no Mm -hmm. no we are not doing that here's the reason and mm-hmm. i thought i would never have sent an email like that to a colleague mm-hmm. 5 years ago never and i think it's um it's somehow come out of all this which is no mm-hmm. um i will not uh accommodate mm-hmm. i will not i will accommodate mm-hmm. i will respect you mm-hmm. i will listen to you mm-hmm. i will i will take your views into account Mm -hmm. i'll try to connect with you emotionally
0: but in the end i'm not going to be run over
1: in the end if i'm running this damned organization i'm running the damned organization nobody else wants to run it so you know what sometimes i get to stand up and say no no doing that there is a
0: boundary and somebody has to lead the band or it all falls apart you know and it's not easy and you get haters from all sides. You know, people say that they want success, but really they want their own success, but they don't want to see you you succeed. You know, the higher you climb, the more darts are at your back. But, you know, at the same time, without women like you, you know, you paved the way. You know, you had the courage to make a trail where there wasn't one, you know, and I believe that opened the door for other women in our field to have a voice.
1: And what... know in the end it's about whether the mission is worth it yeah and it's about reading about these women warriors in this book Mm -hmm. you know what they basically said is of course i'm scared Mm -hmm. of course i'm but you know what i believe in the mission the wish is worth it i'm going to do it and that was like my father saying to me there are certain fights in life you have to have Mm -hmm. and if you don't have them everyone pays yeah when you go into the fight you don't say oh i'll fight until i get hurt yeah you
0: say, i'll fight yeah um, you fight and you're going to sustain hurts along the way and
1: you are it's ironic it, yeah. is
0: everyone looks to you looks to leaders and thinks oh you're bulletproof but in fact it's like you feel everything and there's so many eyes on you and it increases the pressure and you know you take so much and you know, I, I thank you for saying that you felt scared, you know, because often as a leader, I do feel very scared. And, you know, I think a lot of people who are blazing trails, and I imagine, you know, as you're sitting there at these conferences, being the only woman among, you know, on this panel full of men, or, you know, I've heard about some of the things that have gone on at these conferences where people are standing up and shouting at you, challenging you from the audience. These are other colleagues and professionals, which, you know even if that was another man who was in your shoes they wouldn't have done that oh they
1: would not i I, you know and i'm very good at recognizing that these days i rec well i don't do many um in person anymore i do on zoom so you have more control but you know uh before COVID, when i was doing lots and lots of in person i was very good at recognizing that i remember thinking oh um incoming you know like (laughs) here Mm -hmm. he goes this is like, oh, this man would never say this to another man. Okay, jolly good. I know the game we're playing now. Right, you know, mm. I got my, I pick up my rifle. Yeah, man, don't you? As yeah. I said to somebody quite recently, actually, don't you underestimate me? Mm. Don't you underestimate? I wouldn't advise it. Mm-hmm. I'm listening to you, and I'm taking you into account, and I'm trying to listen. But don't you underestimate me, because. Because in the end, there's a thing on my fridge. Somebody gave it to me. It's a little sticky. It's a a cowgirl holding a bunch of rifles. And it says, cowgirl up or go sit in the wagon. (laughs) And it's like, uh, you know, in the end, if women want a better world, um, we have to be willing to take the hits and realize that not everyone's going to like us and that they're going to discount us and dismiss us they always have Mm -hmm. and uh, that the only way to deal with it is to uh, ally with other brave women and with the men wonderful men who support us and to stand up for women's way of being i think it's it's more than standing up for women you know eft is all about how important relationships are Mm -hmm. and how much they can give us that's worth fighting for, you know, as a, yeah. as a principle, um, lasting romantic love is an ideal worth fighting for, so if you're going to fight for those things, yeah, so what, you get injured, yeah, right. the fight, is the fight worth it, yes, the fight's worth it, and, uh, should we listen to women's, uh, relational wisdom, of which they have eons of relation, yes, we should, and do women have a particular gift to give society because they can tune into emotions and they do know something about love and care that is kind of cut off from a lot of men unfairly right but um yes we have huge wisdom about this like at one point there was an argument that women shouldn't fight in the military because it would wreck the cohesion of the fighting group your men were bands of brothers and And then they actually did some research and found that actually the fighting groups that had women integrated in them had more cohesion and more togetherness and yeah yeah because you know women know how to go into a group and Mm -hmm. this is huge generalization you understand but you know i mean it's part of women's dna Mm -hmm. but the way we survived was to connect with other people and connect with each other and help each other survive that's the way we've survived and uh there's a huge wisdom in that. So in the end, you look at your mission. And you say, I do. In the end, do I believe in this mission? How much do I believe in it? Is it worth fighting for? Is it worth getting hurt for struggling for? If the answer is yes. Well, well, then you do it, don't you? I mean, What else are you going to do? Go and Mm -hmm. make pies? Also, I can make pies, but you know what I mean? Like, go and, like, Mm -hmm. that's it, right? And 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 then you go your kids. You know, you you model for your kids, hopefully.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and it it takes a lot of courage to muscle through that adversity. I mean, some of the wars that you fought, people have witnessed, but there's a lot of invisible wars that you've had to (laughs) fight. don't you you know, believe
1: if some it, a few years ago if you looked at my my email mm-hmm. oh my i mean people thought i was getting attacked mm-hmm. they had no idea okay i was right i was people were trying to annihilate me you know it's like yeah. what mm-hmm. Where, where's, where's this aggression coming from but um yeah you know private stuff is you know and, and it, it does.
0: does i would say like being a leader especially if an organization is kind of like being a windshield of a car, whatever explodes in the car hits the windshield, but you also take everything from outside as well.
1: That's (laughs) right. And I feel like one of the things that's true, and it's terribly understandable, but also very difficult, Mm -hmm. is that when the bullets start flying, you're up. And so many of your lovely, well-meaning, supportive colleagues, don't know what to do so they duck and hide behind the bush well guess what you're you can't duck so you're up and there's a point where you're alone Mm -hmm. and you say all right then Mm -hmm. I'm alone so come on Mm -hmm. you want to go for me well then
0: come on. But you
1: know, you yeah. can't always manage that. If it's going to
0: kill me, I'm going to die fighting for a worthy cause. <laughs>
1: That's right. But of course you can't always manage that sometimes. Sometimes you just yeah. feel like, how can people say these things to me? How can they, yeah. how can they possibly dismiss me? Like how can people, mm-hmm. oh my God, this is so hurtful.
0: I don't understand. I don't understand. It hard. Those days where you just want to ball up on the couch and just cry and not talk to anybody because you're so hurt feels like you've just been stabbed in the stomach you know and by people that you fought for and fought on behalf for you know and and you know i've learned some valuable leadership lessons along the way becoming a community leader and i think a lot of times especially in small communities again it's the if you don't step up nobody else will and it is a lot of baptism by fire and I think a lot of us have made the maybe committed the fallacy of believing that those who are higher than us are impenetrable, and that you know we think, oh well, we can't endure the bullet; we're not strong enough; we won't survive. So we've ducked, and then the person above us. And and I've been the one who's had to take those bullets, and it's like, no, I'm I feel it just as much as you do. and That's right. Thanks for you know.
1: I tell you, the other thing that hits me has hit me a lot in the last couple of years. Uh, maybe it's because I've been doing so much online teaching and of course all my therapy's been online but I note somehow that male colleagues um, how can I put this Um, when they talk about their work they feel completely entitled to say things like this works because I know it does and this is I don't have any research but this works because I know it does and this is what I've done and this is my genius whereas women don't usually do that Mm. they usually say oh well you know the research says that um and we have all this research now and it implies that and I've caught myself in the last couple of years and it's still changing for me but I'm aware I did my first in-person talk a few weeks ago to my colleagues in Vancouver. and I was aware at some point that I was standing up on the stage, and I had let go of the female tentative, oh, well, of course, I may be wrong. Oh, well, oh, well, you know, may I suggest this thing. And I found myself saying, this is what emotion is. This is why we work with it. This is how it works. And that's the way it is and i thought oh wait a minute this is um oh there's something different about this what am i and i suddenly thought oh good lord i'm talking like a man you know i'm 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 saying um i'm asserting the absolute validity of my reality and then i'm and then i give you evidence for it because i believe that you deserve that you don't just deserve me saying how clever i am um Mm -hmm. but that's something that women i think we need to learn to do too we need to learn to not be so careful and tentative and we've had to seek out support and approval and be careful how we put our case out well you know what enough
0: Mm -hmm. um i gotta think of the as you're saying that i think of sort of some experiences i've had where i felt you know, around very well intending and wonderful male colleagues, but sort of the sense of maybe a, a fear of being judged as being bossy or drama, you know, like terms that get applied to women when they become assertive and they fight their corner, versus when a man does that, they're not considered bossy or drama, you know, you're being Literally, a drama. They're appointing. not,
1: they're considered right. right. Mm. Whereas, you know, and um, that's right. You know and um i remember one colleague telling me you don't get to say any of this you don't have any research and i laughed and i said mm-hmm. should look and look at the people that you're presenting with at conferences mm-hmm. i have all kinds of incredible research and person said i don't believe you which was really funny okay i thought oh well you know what the hell you know like um i'm right. delusional then you know like
0: but um And you know what amazes me is when people feel threatened by the idea of attachment. I mean, obviously, you're talking to somebody who's got insecure attachment, that connection to other human beings would feel so threatening, you know, whereas the hallmark of attachment is when you're secure, you know, with your connection, you can be more independent. They shouldn't threaten each other. They should flow healthfully. And and these days,
1: I dare,
0: for the last few
1: years, I dare to say things like, EFT is the gold standard mm-hmm. of couple therapy and has changed the couple therapy field. And we have bought working with emotion and attachment into the field of psychotherapy. And this is a incredible contribution. I feel, I feel okay about saying that. Whereas if you'd asked me 10 years ago, I would have said, Oh, well, you know, you know, I'm not sure you could really quite say that. And, you know, well, you know,
0: have to give you're also account. not just pulling this out of the air Sue I mean this was the APA this wasn't like Cosmo magazine or you just making this proclamation you know of yourself this was hard work that you put into it and a title that was earned by a reputable academic organization that's well respected in the field you deserve that and that's yes, what you
1: thought so it's hard for women to believe they deserve that your women's we still put out our views often as somehow tentative Mm -hmm. whereas a man will stand up and say this is the way it is Mm -hmm. and um I like my present identity better Mm -hmm. I like being able to say uh no this is the way it is and you know we have over 30 research studies that you know and I can show it to you on tape I can show you what creates change in individuals in their anxiety and depression I can show you what creates change in couples. I can code it. I can relate it to outcome. I can relate it to follow up three years later. Can you do that? Mm. No, you can't. Oh, you have one study. One study? Are you kidding? Like, oh, well, hey, you know what, then? I get to say this. And you get to, you have to take me on to say that's not true. Whereas, you know, I think women's position before was, if you're awfully nice and you're awfully polite <laughs> and you say things in a way that doesn't scare people, then maybe you'll get listened to. Well, hell to hell with that. Well, and what's just- the quote? Oh. Well
0: behaved women rarely make history. That's right. And so you've made history. I mean, your name is in textbooks. You know, I, I studied about you when I was in my master's, I was in New York, I, I was blessed to be able to come take an externship with you in person, I thought, Oh, my gosh, this would be like, you know, back in the day, if if Freud was alive, being able to take a lecture from him, like to actually speak to a pioneer, someone who created something into, you know, like, if you're a cook having chef Emerald come to your kitchen and cook with your pots and pans, like how exciting would that be? <laughs> you know? So it was so amazing. And it's so amazing to, to even speak with you now. I mean, you have fought so hard, so many haters. And, and as somebody who's not achieved anywhere close to what you've achieved, you know, that you're so relatable and, you know, just being able to hear the things that you've gone through also validates, you know, as a as a leader you know whether you're a man or a woman or or however you identify you know the the fear you know that you really do feel we look on the outside like we got it all together but we're terrified on the inside you know a lot of the leaders i know have ulcers and all kinds of stomach issues you know because they're holding all this pain on the inside and feeling like an outsider and that's sort of like the number one Experience that I hear from fellow leaders and even clients of mine that are also striving for leadership. And I sort of think of like a sheep and a shepherd. And you think, well, how many sheep are there in a flock ratio to a shepherd? You know, you may have 10,000 sheep and one shepherd, maybe a couple. Like the odds, you know, always small. Yes.
1: Know. What comes up for me, Annabelle, is. And this may be a pretentious thing to say hey that's a very female response right. um what is i mean i teach people how to, on one level i teach people all over the world how to do therapy i'm very honored to teach people uh, e- people in egypt people in australia people in finland people in iran people in Still england Still in
0: cultures where women aren't allowed to be therapists and, exactly. speak for men and you I, know. i'm
1: very honored To be doing that and i'm very honored that i got the opportunity but in the end as i tried to say in the last chapter of love sense um maybe it's my vision is in the end what is at stake here exactly well from my point of view it's not just um making people more equal and recognizing that everyone is valuable and that recognizing women as having a valuable thing and even um, helping people have better love relationships. What is at stake exactly? Well, from my point of view, what is at stake is, um, are we going to really understand with and deal with who we are? How our nervous system is structured? our basic vulnerabilities and needs are we going to come together and deal with the fact that we have huge problems like we're wrecking this planet and we can no longer seem to talk to each other if we disagree this is an enormous problem um are we going to survive put it another way are we going to have something called civilization Mm -hmm. you know when gandhi went to london the you know the indian um rebel who wanted England to let go of India. Mm -hmm. Somebody asked him, what do you think of English civilization? Mm -hmm. And Gandhi said, I think it would be a very good idea. Okay. And Mm -hmm. my take in the last chapter of Love Sense was me saying, hey, understanding ourselves and understanding how much we need others and understanding how we get caught in blocks inside ourselves and between each other and see each other as the enemy understanding this is not optional not at this point in human history if we want to if we want to survive but if we want to have something called civilization and i personally don't think we've ever had it i think we have an ideal we move towards it sometimes and I talked in that book about the image I had of civilization, which is ironic given what's just happening in the world um which is that I was in Jerusalem, which on the one hand the three religions there are all the religions of Abraham so you think we could talk to each other, but no you know I was <laughs> I was in Jerusalem and there were young Israeli soldiers with guns everywhere and you know um. Uh, the the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was a very strange place that even as you know somebody who'd been brought up in Christianity I couldn't quite connect Mm -hmm. with and I looked down this this street this old 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 street and there were two little girls I don't think one of them must have been about two and one of them must have been about three and they were walking along hand in hand in this there was nobody around taking care of them in this ancient ancient city that has been the source of hatred and conflict and ah oh, you know our ability to demonize each other forever mm-hmm. and here they were walking down that street and i thought that is civilization and we're miles from there mm. we're miles and that's what's at stake Hmm. we're going to be as human beings Mm -hmm. and are we going to be are we going to grow towards civilization Mm -hmm. which is all about our relationships or not
0: yeah with humanity
1: well in these days it's pretty depressing out
0: there Mm -hmm. we all seem to be
1: and despite
0: knowing what's causing depression we keep like doing more of that and it's oh yeah
1: we're, you we're know. so good at creating the things that distress us. It's just not true. Right? Yeah, we're so good at creating
0: isolation and, mm-hmm. you know, um, there's a it's huge demonizing difference. connection, even though it's the very thing that we need. You know, and we even have an EFT trainer out of Arkansas. You know, we'll give a shout out to Ryan Reyna. He's he's amazing, and he talked about the myth of um, independence. He's like, even if you're on your own and you go to the gas station, somebody still had to put the gas in the gas pump you still have to go to a checker and buy the gas (laughs) you know somebody had to build the gas like there's it's really this illusion like we are never even when we're individual we are never alone we can never function you know in isolation and you know so I love you know ef you know attachment is a science about how we human and EFT gives us a map for how to human better. Yes that's
1: lovely I love that and There's only so many ways to human. Mm -hmm. We talk like you know our our world is in love with infinite choice. Mm -hmm. Well, the fact of the matter is, human beings can't deal with infinite choice. They just start to dissolve. Okay, and there's some choices that fit with your nervous system and some that don't. Mm -hmm. And there's only so many ways to be a full human being, and it's not varied. And we need a map, and we've got one. It's called attachment science, Mm -hmm. and I feel like. If I could do anything in the world, I'd stand up and scream in the middle of all the big cities and say, guys, guys, mm-hmm. you, who, hoo. we've discovered so much in the last 20 years, we've discovered, you know, all this incredible science telling us who we are and what we need. Yay, mm-hmm. are we gonna pay attention? I'm okay, going the main answer is no, because it's not about making money and it's
0: not about power. So, you know, um, right? That's right, dependent. it's an inconvenient truth and so i know we have to to wrap up and round the corner but i want to you know say to those watching that eft whether you're coming for efit eft for couples or efft for families you know eft is all about teaching us how to love and be loved effectively and sue i think for you as a leader if i could take away a message for other leaders is that be prepared to fight some battles have the courage know that you're going to take a lot of hits that are going to be painful and it may feel like it's going to kill you at times but it won't you will survive and really the the task upon you which is sort of what you saw and i think any good leader will see is once you recognize an opportunity for our humanity to grow to be better you can't unsee that and when you when you see that trail not taken and and the opportunity for advancement of our culture of our civilization a good leader is is going to sort of have this conviction in their spirit and know that the mission is worth it worth the risk worth the pain
1: yes and some journalist asked me a few months ago which completely floored me she said um well you've done so much and you've Done all this research and your name's out there, and you've changed all this. And, you know, why do you feel compelled to, you know, you're saying you want to walk your dogs and, you know, go to your cottage and be with your partner and, you know, do your gardening? I'm a, an obsessive gardener. And, but you don't, you don't. So you go and do these podcasts. And why do you, why do you do that? And it floored me. I thought, yeah, why do I do that? Why don't I just, you know, potter in my garden and, that would be much more sensible. Why, and I told all my friends to do that. You know, don't work so hard. And, and what came up, which I thought was fascinating from deep inside is, um, it's my duty. Mm-hmm. If you're a human being and you care about being a human being and you feel mm-hmm. you have something to offer, mm-hmm. um, you know what? Mm-hmm. It's your duty. That's just part of Yeah that's what I was taught uh, perhaps yeah. by my father it was it it's it's just it's
0: just what you do it's your duty you don't you don't and you are it. you're like the psychotherapy Gandhi because <laughs> you are trying to help us come together not under it's not about power it's not about coercion it's about love and connection that's what it's about you're trying to help us come together and have unity And love each other more effectively for the betterment of humankind so that we can treat each other with kindness and dignity and respect whether it's romantic love or platonic love or family love or whatever kind of love you know it helps us human better and if we could have that opportunity why not take it
1: it helps us human better and all the recent stuff about you know um identity and all that stuff going on what's alarming is that it feels to me like we're down we're dismissing some of our basic rituals and organizations that have supported human connection like the family and um you know i think this is a craziness you know we 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 need to not just look at what we consider our political identities or our group Right,
0: Um, or get stuck in our pain because I think when people get hurt enough, their heart hardens, and then they assume, well, I'm I'm going to try to find a way to do the same thing without connection, and that past hurt of maybe failed connection or or painful attachment has allowed our hearts our hearts to become hardened against each other.
1: That's right, and once that happens, I mean, you know, we deal with that in distressed couples forever. And you can work with that and work with it in families. You can even work with it in eFit where people have hardened themselves against their own vulnerability. They've said, I will not accept this. This is strange. I will, as my client said to me, I don't want to feel okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I said, all right. And she said, but I can't live like this. I can't live numb. And so here's the dilemma, you know. And I said, Yeah, but it's so hard for you, isn't it, to even see, even imagine yourself as this child of this age and actually see her face and see she's vulnerable. And she says, I can't see her. I can't see her. Basically, she's saying, I'm not going to look. I'm not going to look. And I say, Okay, you know, that's it's too hard right now. Let's look at how hard it is for you to to even see that little person's face and see that she's vulnerable, you know, the strength for human beings is about knowing who you are, knowing you're vulnerable, knowing you're fragile, Mm -hmm. and dealing with that in a way that you can integrate it and you can find your balance. And it empowers you to know what it is you need. That is strength. And Mm -hmm. um, our other ideas of strength
0: well, endurance and perseverance also build strength.
1: Yes, and and you know, the more you belong, the more you become. We know that. You know, the more you you feel like you belong and you matter to somebody else, the easier it is for you to say, "Hey, hey, I matter." Hey, hey. Yeah. You have something important to say. Hey, you know this is this is part of. We're all busy trying to. Well, from my point of view we're all busy on this journey none of us understand the journey we're all reality moves all the time right we're all busy trying to sort of help each other along this path you know but goodness Mm -hmm. surely we can start to agree about a little bit about the path we're on and pick good destinations can't we maybe yeah um, where EFT tries to do that. It tries to contribute, mm-hmm. in my mind, not just to relationships, which is big enough, mm-hmm. not just to cracking the code of love, that's big enough, um, mm-hmm. not just to psychotherapy, that's big enough, but mm-hmm. I'm pretentious enough to think that EFT is supposed to contribute to our attempts to reach civilization and to be who human beings have the ability to be yeah. At our best, at our best. I mean, at our best, we're a stunning, amazing, creative, incredible species. Yeah. And at our worst, oh wow, yeah, yeah, we destroyers. We're we're. Uh, I don't know what
0: we are. I if we know. choose to be, if we choose to be. And there's a message of hope in attachment. And, and I know we got around, around the corner and finish up here, but I, I want to sort of leave with this because, you know, what you're saying, Sue is just really amazing. And, and if you're watching this and you're a leader, um, you're a pioneer, you know, you know, we talked about the sheep and the shepherds and being a leader is a lonely walk, but there are other shepherds out there and, you know hopefully by listening to sue's story as you're fighting a battle in whatever field you might be in maybe it's in psychotherapy as well or in a community or wherever that your battle will be worth fighting and that you would know from sue's story even if you don't know how it's going to turn i'm sure when you started you had no idea where eft was going to go or what it was going to be about but to know that you do belong that you know you may be wondering is this battle that i'm about to embark on for the betterment of humanity is it going to matter and well,
1: the other thing about that is sometimes we think we're sheep mm-hmm. but when we go inside and look at our emotions and really listen to ourselves we can turn and make a contribution mm-hmm. that is stunning and amazing and important and turns things around so you know i think everyone has the ability to have moments of leadership and it's only completely crazy people like me who get stuck in that role
0: and um sometimes get totally squished by it but um yeah. but have the courage to fight the fight worth fighting for and
1: is the fight worth fighting for is the yeah. you know uh there's some phrase from some i'm a buddhist to i'm a bad buddhist But there's some phrase that says, um, what are you going to do? I I said this to my son. I can't remember. I can't do it right now, right? But basically it says, what are you going to do with your one precious uh, short life? Decide what you're going to do. Are you going to make it count? And my response to that is, you betcha. Let's make it count. You're like, no, like, all right, life is short. We're all scared. You know, anything can happen. Uncertainty is the name of the game. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you betcha. Let's decide what we want to do with our one precious
0: life. Yes. And then let's go for it. What the hell? Yeah. What what else? What else is there to do? Yeah. Yeah. No matter, you know, where you might be standing and wondering how it's going to turn out, you know, hopefully you'll feel inspired by Sue. To know that anything that contributes to humanity is worth it, you know, is meaningful yes. and does matter. And I hope that you feel encouraged by Sue's stories, by the journey that she's traveled, that in a world of haters, that you too can make a difference, that you can create something great, that you can create something meaningful that can have a, a positive impact on humanity on people's lives and it may be a painful journey buckle in strap yourself in be prepared for the fight you know but there are other shepherds out there who will be with you and you know at the end of the day regardless of how it turns out it's stick to the the mission and just focus on the impact that you want to have and so we we really do have to wrap up unfortunately because I I have to get to you I Um, I know we were going to talk about leadership and things but this was fun thank you yes and so you have made many contributions not just books for therapists but you started writing children's books um and so you have books available for the general public hold me tight love sent some amazing books you have books for therapists and clinicians and your children's books. Where can everyone find your books?
1: Oh, well, you can look at my website www.sujohnson. um I've only written one but it's not really a children's book. It's really um it's really about EFT put into a story of of animals, right? So it's for everyone. but um I wrote Edgar and Eloise um a few about a few months ago and just out of love and just because I loved it and um, it's about identity and how we create who we are and how we connect with others and whether we when a fight comes to our world do we all run away or do we stand together so it's about those basic things so you can find edgar and eloise on my website you can find my latest book which is the primer in emotionally focused individual therapy which i'm very proud of and i wrote with my wonderful colleague leanne campbell and we teach together, we teach EFit all over the internet and all over ICEFT, And we work with PESI as well, our partners. So, um, and people seem to be really responding to emotionally focused individual therapy. Yeah. And of course, we're very proud of our work in, in couples and families too. So people can go there or they can go to ISEFT www.iceeft ice EFT although I think of EFT is pretty warm but com, and they can look and they can look at books there's all kinds of things on YouTube I can't believe how many bits of me there are on YouTube these days yeah some of them really weird okay but anyway um you know I it's don't know. amazing I don't know. and I
0: will make sure to put a link to your website on both for icept and for drsuejohnson.com in the description for this video so people
1: because my colleagues will get really mad at me you know hold me tight is still being sold across all kinds of cultures and languages and of course we have a hold me tight online program that people can take which i'm very proud that our u.s military and our canadian military use to help military families and the big hospital in my main the capital of canada the heart hospital uses it um to help people recover from heart attack because if you're going to recover from heart attack you're going to do it with somebody else not all by yourself yeah and uh so hold me tight online is there we 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 feel the need to educate the public as well as therapists um you know um we just want to grow people basically yeah
0: and that's a wonderful thing. So if you're watching this video, if you're a therapist, check out ISEP.com. Again, I will put the link in the description for this video. Um, and you can find a list of EFT trainings all over the globe and even Sue's trainings. If you wanna go take a workshop with Sue directly, it's available there. And you can also learn more about Sue at drsuejohnson.com. Learn more about EFT on both websites. And I really hope that you will check out Sue's websites, order her books, check her out on YouTube. And uh, if you are interested in finding an EFT therapist in your area, you can go to isef.com and there's a spot to find a therapist. And you can type in your zip code or your state or your country and find a therapist in your area. And they are all over the globe and it's ever expanding. So um, just go ahead and pop over there and you can find an EFT therapist to work with. And I hope that if you are a leader and you you're watching this, that you'll feel inspired by Sue's journey and know that you too can make a difference and that you'll have the courage to fight whatever battle you're fighting for the betterment of humanity for a worthy cause. And, uh, you know, continue on that journey and uh, not let the bullets take you out and keep you from doing a, a worthy mission. <laughs> so thank you, Sue, so much for being with us today welcome
1: it was lots of fun thank you annabelle i appreciate you
0: thank you and thank you so much to our viewers make sure that you guys hit subscribe we finally hit ten thousand subscribers which is amazing so thank you guys for watching for your support and just make sure that you hit subscribe because as always more videos are on the way don't forget to buy my book Using Relentless Empathy in the Therapeutic Relationship, Connecting with Challenging and Resistant Clients for Helping Professionals. Available on Amazon or on my website, www.drbugatti.com.